Hello, and welcome to episode 91 of Commonplace. I'm your host, Rachel Zucker. Time is getting short. Now I feel conflicted. Should I be a scholar or just use these rhymes and kick it? Will I be platinum or PhD? Will my art be a key to lift my dreams without THC and help me EAT? Unsure. I am thrilled to share this conversation between myself and Nate Marshall that I recorded back in October of 2020. Nate Marshall is a poet, educator, playwright, performer, editor, and rapper. His first full-length poetry collection, Wild Hundreds, was published in 2015, and his second full-length collection, Finna, was published in 2020. Nate is an editor of the fabulous anthology, The Breakbeat Poets, New American Poetry in the Age of Hip-Hop, and co-curates the Breakbeat Poets series for Haymarket Books. He co-wrote the play No Blue Memories, The Life of Gwendolyn Brooks with Eve Ewing, and also wrote the audio drama Bruh Rabbit and the fantastic telling of Remington Ellis, Esquire. Nate is a member of the Dark Noise Collective and co-directs, with e-viewing, Crescendo Literary, a partnership that develops community-engaged arts events and educational resources as a form of cultural organizing. Nate was raised in the West Pullman neighborhood of Chicago and is a proud Chicago Public Schools alum. He holds a BA in English and African American Diaspora Studies from Vanderbilt, an MFA in Creative Writing from the University of Michigan, and has received fellowships from Cave Canem, the Poetry Foundation, and the University of Michigan. He's taught in both traditional and community-based settings and is currently an assistant professor of English at Colorado College. I'd been reading and admiring Nate's poems for a while and had the good fortune to get an advanced reader's copy of Finna. Finna sang to me. It cut through the unreaderly haze that is my pandemic brain, a haze that has made reading feel difficult, sometimes impossible. I assigned Nate's book to my NYU Advanced Undergraduate Poetry Workshop and invited Nate to remotely visit my class and then record a conversation for Commonplace right afterwards. My students adored Finna and Nate, as I suspected they would. Again and again, my students and I returned to Nate's words, his book, and the assignments he inspired. In our post-class conversation, Nate and I talk about our hometowns of Chicago and New York, about leaving these hometowns and how this changed our writing practices. Nate talks about his Midwestern distaste for meanness and cruelty, his grandmother's admonition not to tell stories. We talk about a poem and a poet's allegiance to the truth, We talk about collaboration, creative friendships, the marketplace, and how he knows when what he's working on is going to turn into a poem, short story, play, spoken word, or rap. For this episode, some members of the Commonplace Book Club will receive a copy of one of the following books, Wild Hundreds and Finna, both by Nate Marshall, and Mules and Men by Zora Neale Hurston. 
Many thanks to University of Pittsburgh Press, One World, and Harper Perennial for these wonderful books. All Commonplace patrons will get access to an audio file of Nate reading a previously unrecorded poem of his and a PDF of the writing exercises inspired by Finna that I used when reading and writing the book with my students. I've also included a few writing prompts inspired by my other class visitor from last semester, the fabulous poet Amakojo. Commonplace has no ads and receives no institutional support. The podcast is made possible entirely by patrons. To find out how to become a Commonplace patron, for a list of links to the poets and texts Nate and I mention in the episode, or to sign up for the Commonplace newsletter, please visit commonpodcast.com. Commonplace does partner with a charitable fund that has agreed, whenever possible, to donate $250 to a charity chosen by our guests, in our guests' honor. For this episode, Nate Marshall chose the organization A Long Walk Home, an organization that empowers young artists and activists to end violence against all girls and women. A Long Walk Home advocates for racial and gender equity in schools, communities, and our country at large, and can be found at alongwalkhome.org. I have several updates to share with you. Updates about me and about Commonplace, including some thoughts on the sustainability of the podcast, such as applying for grants and considering other funding models. I also have an update on some staff changes, including the departure of Doreen Wang, who brilliantly ran Commonplace's social media for the past two years. Stay tuned for the release of this short, behind-the-scenes, standalone update, which will include a lovely audio goodbye from Doreen. Until then, I hope this conversation with the extraordinary Nate Marshall and the Commonplace Archive will keep you good company. This is only the second one of these conversations that I've done remotely um, using Zoom. And in some ways it feels the same because I can see you. um, So I can like pick up on body language and stuff, but in other ways, it feels so weird. I feel like I'm in some kind of, like, I think of that, the hatch and lost and like, like yeah. I'm in some kind of weird, like, it, like there's a button I'm waiting to press or something like, I don't know. There's this very weird. Like, I feel like I'm in the submarine and like I'm trying to talk to someone and, and I, and my normal conversation skills are all messed up. We're going to make it work because it's what we have. And I'm so excited to talk to you about your book. So welcome to Commonplace, Nate Marshall. So awesome to have you here. I want to talk about your new book, Finna, and about whatever else you want to talk about, how how you're writing these days, how it's going, how it's going to have your new book come out during a pandemic. You want to start off maybe by reading... um, a poem from Finna, so we just hear the sound and we hear your voice. Sure. Um, do you have a specific poem you want me to read or dealer's choice? Yeah, I do. I kind of, you know, as as a lifelong New Yorker, 
who is now not in New York and is thinking for the first time in my life of leaving New York. Um, am I correct that you are currently in Colorado and not in Illinois? Yeah, I was hoping you'd start mm. with when I say Chicago. Sure, sure. When I say Chicago, capital city of the flyover, crown jewel of the jailhouse, a town in love with its own blood, a blood browned on its own history and funk, hometown of the riot and the riot gear, the gang and the loitering law, misfit blocks of dark-skinned cousins and thick-knuckled Slavic uncles who call each other their worst names. What this country know about a rust belt dipped in salt and vinegar and sold is marked up and rustic. My city is the city, not your close enough suburb, not subject to the suppression of tape and the tapping of phones. How can you say anything about our blocks and schools and children that you refuse to see? Don't tell us what is wrong with all of our cousins you've never known. You do not govern what you do not love. When I say Chicago, I mean that first Haitian cat who could pronounce it right. When I say Chicago, I mean the stopped and frisked. I mean the euphemism of frisk. I mean the beat down and tight cuff. I mean the drop off in Bridgeport or Mount Greenwood. I mean the lessons taught to an uppity one. When I say Chicago, I mean the lake and I mean all of it. I mean the candy lady at Rainbow and the paleta men at Calumet and the kids careening across the green at Montrose and the jogger in midwinter daring a death for fitness. When I say Chicago, I mean Cabrini and Stateway and Ickies and Ida, the city I'll tell my kids about in the past tense. I mean the rents that sometimes make me mean Georgia or Indiana or Dalton. When I say Chicago, I mean the restaurants with no chairs, just a window a bulletproof sneeze guard. I mean a Michelin star for all the ethnics slanging their seasoned meats and language. When I say Chicago, I mean my mama's house. That was my grandma's house. I mean the neighborhood that was a neighborhood because we said we'll make a home here and we'll stay. Ah, oh, thank you. Can you talk a little bit about that poem? Like I, I have this sort of a suspicion based on absolutely nothing that it was one of the earlier poems that you wrote that went into Finna? Um, I guess it's like relatively early. So one of the things that maybe is important to, to name about it is it's one of a few poems in the book that comes out of a commission. It was like, um, so Chicago Magazine reached out to me a few years back. Um, they, they always have an annual kind of like best of Chicago you know, issue. And they were like, yeah, will you, uh, will you write a poem about the city? The kind of task that they, that they, that they handed to me, they were like, okay, you know, that Carl Sandburg poem, that's super duper famous that like every kid who like went to CPS knows, you know, can you do that? But just like for now though. And I was like, that's an absurd. I was like, only, only like folks who don't deal sort of regularly with poems would think that that was like at all a reasonable ask. <laughs> but I was like, fuck it, I'll try. Like, that's cool. Yeah, it made me really think about like, you know, literally when I say Chicago or when I'm referring to the city, right? Because so much of my work is 
focused on that place and and thinking about the sort of historical and cultural context of that place like what are the things i'm actually talking about what are the things that i mean right because you know i think it's true that we always always like places have multiplicities and many different uh experiences but i think especially in a city like chicago that's so radically segregated you know geographically and racially and uh you know socioeconomically that people literally mean different things when they refer to the place right um and so i yes i was trying to like think think about what that what that sort of definition was for for me yeah and i'm thinking about you know the title of your book um and a word that comes up a lot um, in the book, uh, Finna, is yeah. so recognizably a Black word and a Southern word. So you're also, yeah. I mean, the thing that comes up in the book and in your work, um, not not necessarily as overtly in this poem, but, you know, your, your mm-hmm. Chicago, I, I'm thinking, is also a Southern Chicago to some extent. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I don't think that that's like uncommon, like a thing that I recognize is like specifically a kind of certainly a black Chicago thing and perhaps like a a sort of black Midwestern experience um, or at least certain parts of the Midwest, like this would be different for say like Minnesota or Minneapolis, but um, you know, but in Chicago, like overwhelmingly the black community is folks who, who trace their lineage back to the South. Right. It's folks that had, you know, parents or grandparents or great grandparents who migrated from Louisiana, Arkansas, Mississippi, often those three places, right? <laughs> like, um, you know, occasionally some Alabama, maybe Georgia, this kind of thing. I mean, like, to be honest with you, I remember being a kid and going, like, in probably like high school and like going to the East Coast sort of for the first time um, or like spending time with folks from the East Coast, uh, at, like summer camp and stuff. And, that was the first time I really realized that there were significant black communities in the U S that like that had lineages other than like, Oh yeah, my people are from, you know, parchment, Mississippi or whatever. Um, I like, didn't know that it was like, and I know that sounds sort of like silly or sort of like perhaps ignorant or whatever, but like, it, it just never occurred to me. I'm like, Oh snap. Like your people are from Liberia. Like you're Jamaican, you're, you know, Trinidadian or whatever. Like that, that, that was just like, it was not, it's not, you know, that's a relatively small part of the community in Chicago, especially on the South and West sides. Um, like there are, there are significant African and Caribbean communities um, in like certain pockets of the North side. So like Rogers Park sort of far North, you know, but the thing about Chicago is it's such a segregated and such a vast city that you spend your entire life in the city and never go to those neighborhoods. So they're just, they're, they're like not a part of your purview. So, yeah, I mean, you know, for me, like, to be a black Chicagoan or to be someone that's like steeped in the culture of black Chicago does mean to like be someone that is contending with this sort of historical legacy and lineage of the South. Yeah. Like I've heard people call, uh, call Chicago before, uh, cold Mississippi. (laughs) Yeah. And that tracks like that, that like, you know, there was a point in the 20th century when there were more, uh, there were more people born in Mississippi in Chicago than in any county in Mississippi. Wow. Yeah. And and when did you move to, um, where are you in Colorado? You're in Colorado so, Springs? Yeah, I'm in Colorado Springs. Um, we moved out here a little more than a year ago. So like August 2019. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And and uh, what's that like? Are you are you? Uh, what's it like to be there? Also, what's it like to be such a recognizably, you know, Chicago poet, not in Chicago? Like, yeah. Certainly, there are there are artists who have like made whole lives in Chicago. So I think of someone like Gwendolyn Brooks, or in a more contemporary space, someone like Chance the Rapper, who left and came back to the city, and has sort of like made his life not just being in the city, but being really civically engaged with the city. But like, you know, one of the great stories of Chicago is that like people leave um, because it's a kind of crossroads city. And because, you know, though it's like a sort of, you know, great American city and global city, artistically, it doesn't have the same sort of infrastructure as like many of the coastal hubs. And so, you know, Richard Wright is in Chicago and it's sort of where he comes of age in a particular way, but then he bounces, right? Mm. Um, you know, Margaret Walker leaves the city. You know, Langston Hughes, like, kind of famously, ha- like, sort of didn't like Chicago, but, like, spent hella time there, right? Um, and so, you know, he has a sort of, in- like, evolving engagement with the city over decades and decades. So, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that act of leaving has has a sort of long history, and and I also don't see it as, like, a a closed chapter. So like, you know, I'm not in the city now, but four years ago, I didn't think I was going to be in Colorado. Like that wasn't a thing that I had planned or could have like tracked. It was on my radar at all. So. Yeah. All right. So what, and and what's it like now that you're there? I've spent a bunch of time in Denver, um, very yeah. little time in Colorado Springs. Yeah. You know, Colorado Springs is a weird town because it's like super, you know, it has these like really strong strains of kind of conservatism yeah, that are just complicated, right? Like focus on the family and this particular sort of stream of evangelical fervor is headquartered here, literally. Um, there's also a, a tremendous like military presence here. And so that c- can skew the politics in a, in a particular kind of way. And, and those things can be weird. Um, one thing I will say about it that has been really interesting is that I think about how can I say this? My, this is maybe the place I've lived where people have been most deferential to me um, as like a black man. And I realized that a lot of that comes from the assumption that like most of the black community here or, or a large part of the black community here are veterans. They're, they're active duty or they're, or they're like ex-military. And so that, and yeah. And so people have like a different kind of orientation to them. And so if you're kind of like a relatively, you know, clean cut sort of well-spoken like black dude, they just assume that you're, you know, that you like you were in the army or something. And, and so people just regard you differently, right? They don't, Interesting. you know, I don't, I don't feel the same sort of like on its face fear or hostility as when I've lived in, you know, Chicago or Tennessee or Indiana or Michigan and encountered white folks. And so that is like, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's like an interesting thing. It's just like fascinating to, to kind of observe and track. Yeah. Has, has that kind of feeling of like living in a place where you're experiencing this particular deferential treatment changed? Like, has that gotten into your writing, both either in terms of content or process? Like, I, I wonder... Mm. Like, I know you said in another interview that a lot of times the poems that you write about Chicago, 
you are writing when you're not in Chicago. And I, I find that as well. Like I, I went through a period of time where I wrote a lot, a lot, a lot about New York and, and then I wanted to write more explicitly about New York, but I found that a lot of times I was writing when I was traveling, both as a way of like noticing where I was, but also as a way of seeing where I wasn't more clearly in comparison in some kind of way, or like really feeling like a New Yorker when I really wasn't in New York because I was noticing, you know, the differences in the way I was treated or the way I felt in relation to the natural world or the lack of the natural world. Hmm. Yeah, uh, that's a good question. I, I think the sort of easy answer is I'm not sure because I haven't written that much. Um, you know, I mean, I wrote, there, there are a few poems in the books that were written in the early months of us being here. And so, you know, so I think some of Colorado is reflected in those, but um, for me, like the biggest thing, I, I think my, my impulse is the things that I feel like I'm feeling are a kind of different, how can I say? I think a different sort of engagement with the natural world or a different kind of practice of noticing. And part of that is like in Chicago, not that I didn't notice the natural world of the city, but like when I, when I think of Chicago, I think much of what I name as the city and as the things that sort of hold me or feel important to me, significant to me, are about people, right? Like even in that poem, that poem is like very peopled and very populated, right? And, you know, Colorado is just a different landscape. One, one it's just like much less dense than like being in a city, in, the, in like a sort of major city. But two, it's also you know, the landscapes are far more novel to me, right? Like I'm from the Midwest. I like the idea that like the earth goes up at places is still like deeply confusing to me. So that I like walk out of my house and like see literal mountains is like wild, you know, and because of the, I guess like the nature of kind of pandemic and all that is like, I spend a lot more time alone (laughs) or a lot more time like just like me and my partner or in like very, very small, very specific and concentrated sort of groups of people. Yeah, I mean, my, my life is just far less peopled he, here, you know, than it was in Chicago. And maybe even then it would be in Chicago because even in the case of like the pandemic and quarantine and all that in Chicago, I still, I don't stop knowing the like literally probably thousands of people that I know in Chicago and that I feel like directly connected to even if like, I can't like hang out with them in person or shake their hand or whatever, you know, whereas here I just like, you know, I really only know like the people that work at my job and like a handful of other folks. Yeah. Have you been back to Chicago since the pandemic? Uh, I went back once for like, basically like two, three days. And it was like, it was really good and like super stressful. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. two of my best friends, uh, my childhood best friends got married and it was, it was cool. It was like great to see them, but it was also like one scary. And also just like, I found myself really out of practice of like being around people. Mm-hmm. So like, I was like, wow, it's been so long since I had to like make small talk with someone who I'd like didn't know super well. And I'm like sitting there like talking to the other groomsmen and they're like, Oh, so what do you do? Or like, what are you doing now? Where are you at? And I'm like, dog, I haven't done this in like six months. Like, why, why are you talking to me? Dog? <laughs> you know, I just like felt yeah. like an alien. 
I've been, uh, I'm in Maine right now, which I, I was born in New York. I lived my whole life in New York City, except for, you know, traveling. Um, and uh, such a ridiculous New Yorker, like, you know, spent two years in Iowa City and just was like terrified of the Midwest, like couldn't even figure out, like, people were so friendly. I was terrified of them. Um, aside from um, college and grad school, I've always lived in New York. And um, except for two weeks, I've been in Maine um, since March 8th. And uh, wow. I went back um, for two weeks. Uh, I'm getting divorced. And my husband uh, has primarily, you know, he quarantined me and my three kids and my husband quarantined here for for a long time and then he went back and my 13 year old wanted to be in the city for soccer and for school and stuff so they've been kind of going back and forth and then it was sort of like my turn to go to new york you know i've lived in the same apartment in new york for 23 years 22 22 years my my youngest son was born in that apartment I've had the same neighbors, some of them for the whole time, you know, like I know my neighborhood, I know my building, I know all the, the store keepers and like, you know, I could walk to the subway and get on the train and go to work with my eyes closed, you know, like I know the route that well, like I know where the rats are and like, you know, went across the street, um, you know, and uh, like I, 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 so I went back there and I'd been away for six months and that's the longest I've ever been in one place, I think, maybe in my whole life, mm -hmm. you know, like without a night away, without, you know, any, and it was, it was wild. I, I really kind of forgot how to be a New Yorker in certain ways and, and parts of it were, were really you know, one of the things I love about New York is the population density and like you can't, you can't, no one's in their car. You can't like just be away from other people. You have to be around other people. But with the pandemic, I was like, wait, I, the, the kindest, safest, most respectful thing to do is to move away. And that feels so antithetical to like, you know, everything that being a New Yorker means to me, which is about like moving toward or tolerating being, you know, pressed up against, you know, 10 other people. You're like, I don't even understand how so many people are in contact with my body right now in the subway car, but somehow it's working, you know? Um, and so like all of a sudden feeling like anxious when the subway was half full, you know, or when someone wasn't wearing their mask and like also part of how, I'm sorry to go on and on, but it's the first time I've really like talked about this like experience of going back to New York. Like I realized that smiling at people and reading their facial expressions is like a really important uh, way that I navigate everything about my existence in New York City. And with the masks, I found it very hard to identify whether people were, uh, I mean, I, I was smiling like an idiot through my mask all the time, but like, could anybody see me? You know, you can kind of yeah. tell when someone's smiling, but it just threw everything into this kind of weird 
alternative, you know, alternate universe. I don't know, but but I don't know yet what it would mean to really actually leave New York. Um, and I think, you know, to for me to be in Maine as opposed to New York is such a massive difference in like the way I feel every day and and primarily my contact with other human beings. But then on top of it, to be in a pandemic and to know that I can't easily, you know, go see my dad. Um, I can't, uh, you know, there's so many people that the best way I can sort of like love and protect them is not to see them. And that is bizarre. You know, I, I don't know. And I haven't written anything, which there could be a lot of reasons for that. But I wonder if part of my writing comes out of a kind of need to both like describe the press of the city and and create a little space of quiet or silence within that and I don't feel that now um I don't feel that need I and I wonder if I writing will take on another um sort of form or or sound or shape or need or if I just won't write anymore I don't know hmm. yeah yeah that's interesting yeah I mean I don't know I think I guess I do think because so much of my like again like so much of my work is really thinking about people and specifically about how people kind of relate to each other um and so certainly I like feel some of those things but I do still think like there are all for me all these things about like we're still relating to each other, right? But that relation just looks really different. It looks like, you know, being here on Zoom, like looking in in screens a lot as the way that you sort of see people in a kind of novel way, or it's, um, you know, it's like reading the news and sort of seeing the ways that different people are reacting, or, you know, even like going outside of your house and seeing, um, you know, even small groups of people, like how they're kind of doing stuff. So like we, where we live, we live pretty close to the sort of like downtown, but like, you know, the little downtown that, that Colorado Springs does have. And so seeing like, you know, when folks are walking down the street, like, okay, who has on masks, who doesn't, um, how's that sort of operating? Like what happens when we go into the grocery store? You know, so I guess this is the nature of like living being in Chicago versus being in Colorado Springs is like, you know, you see way more like MAGA hats. And so like, that's, a, yeah. that's like a thing. So like, there are still all these like relationship points. And also I think, I think I, how can I say this? Uh, my partner, Allison, she always sort of jokes that like, I have um, like one of those faces that like people, people are like drawn to, like people just tend to talk to me when I'm kind of out and about. Um, and presume me friendly in ways that don't make a lot of sense to me. Um, you know, so like I remember, friendly? well, not that I'm not friendly, but I guess just like people who I, who like one might reasonably assume would be hostile to me or vice versa, or vice versa will like engage me in way, you know, like we'll be, we've been out at restaurants and there's like some dude who like works as like a military contractor, you know, like building doing like the chemical side of like weapons manufacturing and he like starts talking to me about like my the t-shirt I have on or he's like I often wear this like Africa medallion and he's like oh what what is that like this and that mm -hmm. you know 
And I'm like, dude, like, why do you think I want to talk to you in this like seafood restaurant in Colorado? I have no idea, but cool. And, and it's like a thing that like, I remember being in the, um, but where I was teaching before was in like sort of rural Indiana. Um, and it's like very, very white, very conservative, very rural county and being at the bar, like during the Kavanaugh hearings and like hanging out with all these guys in the bar, not because I was trying to hang out with them. I just literally just wanted to like have a beer and they're sort of talking about the goings on in the news that's on TV. And they're like, they like, are like, this guy's great. They're like, by the end of the night, they're buying me drinks and they're like making friends with me. And I'm texting Allison during this cause she's back in Chicago. And she's like, babe, please go home. Like, what are you doing? Like, why are you out? You know, and it, like, this is like a town where literally like I see more Confederate flags than black people in the course of a week. And so it's, so it's not a place that feels like it would be hospitable at all to me. But like, right. this is the kind of experience that I have. And I think, and it's like, it's strange, but I think in some ways it's like a really useful way for the world to meet you when you're someone that is an art, artist that isn't, and specifically that's a poet that's in this kind of like noticing discipline. Cause it gives you a lot of shit to like work with, right? Cause yeah, cause mugs just like come to you and mouth off for no, you know, like, and in ways that you like didn't invite, they're, you know, they're like talking about, you know, how unbelievable and an obvious plant Christine Blasey Ford is. And I'm like, I am just drinking this alcohol, sir. But yeah, thank you. I don't, you know, like, I don't even have a response for you. Um, Cause it's not really like a changing of your mind. And that's, and it's also just not what I'm here to do. I'm just like here to like get a little intoxicated and like go grade papers. <laughs> but it, it reminds me of uh, like uh, the section that the poem, um, when I say Chicago is the title of the section is native informant. And so yeah. like, I feel like somehow in that situation and in, and in these other situations in your life, you're like a native informant. And even when you're not at home or, you know, a place that you are feel native to, there's something that like people seem to like trust you and approach you as if you are, you know, that word native wow. is so like complicated and problematic, but like mm -hmm. as, if, as if like you, you share something or they share something with you and, but then you're, you're also an informant, you know, to the poem or yeah. to Allison or to, you know, the reader, um, which is really yeah. interesting. I love that you called yeah. poetry a noticing discipline. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's complicated. Like, I think I've been thinking about that title, Native Informant, for a long mm -hmm. time. Like, it was probably one of the potential titles for the first book. The first book has sections, but they're not titled. But I, I want to say maybe there was a section that had that carried that title in earlier drafts. But, you know, it's a really complicated thing. But I think I often find myself in the situation of sort of being one of the good ones in a bunch of ways, right? So whether that's like you know, being in kind of alternative type education or activists or artistic spaces where people have a kind of hostility to folks that they see as like being complicit or working within a, the power structure of things like the academy, but they still rock with me. They're like, they're like, yeah, professors are, are whack, but like Nate, Nate's cool. Like Nate's all right. He, he like, he gets it. He's like, not, 
he's in that space, but he's sort of not of it. And and vice versa, I think I'm often in the other space um, that has a kind of hostility towards, yeah, towards these sort of non-traditional educational spaces or these sort of community-based spaces. And people are like, yeah, but like, you're cool, even though you kind of come out of that tradition. Like you, you like have like done a sort of intellectual work or do a sort of presentation that's legible to us. And so, yeah, I don't know. I just, I feel like I go through a lot of my life um, in all spaces, sort of feeling like um, if you've ever seen the boondocks, uh, the cartoon, like the first episode of the boondocks, one of the characters um, who's this like kid uh, who's from Chicago and has moved out to the suburbs with his granddad to this sort of very white sort of wealthy suburb. He goes there like at a dinner party of like the guy who owns the bank, I think. And his grandfather's trying to suck up and he's, and he's like, tell it, you know, it's funny. So it's tongue in cheek. He's like, don't you ever tell white people the truth? Like what the hell is wrong with you? This and that. But the, the last scene, he like, he like steps up at the dinner party, he steps up to the mic and he's like, look, Ronald Reagan is the devil. Da, da, da. And he's, he's like saying all these presumably incendiary things and everyone is just like clapping for him. They're like doing these like, they're like, oh, ah. and I think, you know, part of what we're supposed to see as observers is like, oh, like they're just, it doesn't even matter what he's saying. They're sort of like surprised that he is able to like operate in the space and like be well-spoken or like not combust, <laughs> like whatever. And I've, and I feel like often I often feel like I'm just in that situation in a lot of spaces. Like I'll be in a faculty meeting and I'm, and I'm kind of like dissing really sort of fundamental structures to the institution or, you know, to the ways that we approach education in these kind of, you know, neoliberal colonial spaces that are higher education in America. And people are like, Nate's so great. He's so, he's so thoughtful. <laughs> he's like, I agree with what Nate said. And I'm like, word? Cause I'm like dissing you and I'm dissing me too. Like I'm dissing all of us, you know? I don't know. And sometimes like, it makes me wonder sometimes if like people are actually listening or if they just are like <laughs> uh -huh. so surprised that the Negro can like put together a full sentence that they're just enthralled with that and they haven't gotten past to like the actual content. I mean, assuming that they're that and I, I shouldn't assume, um, but assuming that they're they are listening at least enough. What do you think it is that like gives you that it's kind of like a superpower or it might be a super curse. Um, but like mm. what gives you this ability to basically speak truth to power and say the shit that needs to be said and for some reason. Instead of people you know, trying to fire you or, you know, shoot you. Uh, they're like, oh, I love Nate. What is that? Yeah. Have you, have you always had that in your life? Kind of. And I don't really, I don't really, I mean, I think part of it is maybe like, I think it's, I think it's a kind of Midwesternness. I think it's like, even when I'm, even when I'm sort of hostile to people, I, I do, there's maybe a, a veneer of sort of friendliness and and there's like, a, you know, I think I have like a real, I think part of the, like maybe the most Midwestern thing about me is that I have a real deep distaste for like meanness. Mm. And so e even when I'm like attacking a thing, I don't, 
there's a certain kind of cruelty that like gives me no pleasure and that I think I try to avoid. And so maybe people are responding to a, some recognition of that intentionally or unintentionally. I also think, you know, I also think it's a lot of like things that are, that are kind of problematic. Like I think it's that I'm a man. And so that there are certain ways of being oppositional that feel sort of masculine coded and so people are comfortable with with those expressions because like I think me and Allison for example get regarded very differently in space because of that as like a black man sort of positionality versus a black woman kind of positionality and so that's like a thing I think is maybe coloring it I also think like you know also also like I have a lot of I have a lot of like traditional markers of you know, of like, quote unquote, success or intellectualism or whatever. And so when I'm, I think when I'm saying a thing, people are reading the, often reading the parts of me that they want to read into those, into those moments and ignoring the parts of me that they prefer not to read into those moments, mm. you know, so, they, so like, when they hear me, they're, they're not necessarily thinking of like, okay, this is like a kid who came up poor on the South side of Chicago, who in many ways is like, um, has a kind of, constitutional oppositionality to the sort of space that we're curating in this college in this foundation in this whatever they're thinking of me as like oh this is like the guy who like went to Vanderbilt and went to Michigan and has these sort of you know kind of elite degrees and you know cosigns from places like a poetry foundation or like a you know, whatever. And so I, I think that's, that's also like a part of it. It'd be sort of dishonest to like not acknowledge that, 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 yeah, that again, like if people were, you know, if I went to schools that didn't have the sort of cachet that they did, that I think people would regard me differently and regard my ideas differently, you know. Will you, will you read the poem telling stories? Um, Cause sure. I feel like this is uh, connected to something I want to ask you about this. Absolutely. I love this poem. Thank you. All right. Telling stories. A few times each year, I'm convinced of the end of singleness, the beginning of a singularity. I become convinced of the infinite curve of love. My grandma like all black grandmothers perhaps, told me do not tell stories by which she meant do not lie, except we couldn't say lie, which was a curse word in her house. My grandma, like all black grandmothers perhaps, told me stories about where we were from and who we were from and the unbroken string of happy accidents and hapless miracles that made us possible. My grandma used to say, Worst thing in the world, a liar or a thief. And I know I've been both these most deplored before. My grandma used to say, I love you. My grandma gone. My convictions gone too. Does that mean an end to the long curve of her love or mine? Does that mean I love you is always bound to end up a story? If so, what kind? The worst thing or one of the small impossibilities that put us here. Oh, thank you for that. Um, no, thank you. There's so much in this poem and, 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 and I don't even know where to begin. Like, you know, I'm so interested in the, 
the way that the word story, of course, means lie and of course means the truth, you know, maybe more true than something that's not considered a story, right? Like often the stories that our grandparents tell us or our parents or our, you know, our elders, those stories are often more true than history as it's recorded in the history books or these other so-called facts. Um, you know, if we really think about where those facts are coming from and who, who deemed them facts. And I think I'm really interested in the way in which like the word story comes up over and over again in Finna and also the word lie. Um, there's a poem that I'm forgetting the title of, forgive me, but there's the word lie and then there's a line break and it's down is oh, the yeah. neck. I think it's poem? Ode to Vacation and I don't lie yeah. down from, yeah. 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 I don't lie down. And, and so, you know, first of all, lie comes up uh, several times, like what it means to lie and, and why someone lies. And, but then lie becomes lie down. And so the, in, in some ways, you know, to lie down is like to get walked all over to get, you know, to be, but it also in the context of this poem of vacation means to rest and, you know, to take it easy, which is something that the speaker is really never does uh, in the poem. So I'm, I'm just really interested in how you think about the poem or a poem in terms of its relationship to telling lies, telling stories, telling the truth, its allegiance to maybe to telling a kind of truth in which an, there's an awareness of of how difficult it is to tell the truth or one truth. I don't know. I I, I don't. I I should have like a more precise question about this, <laughs> and I don't. It was just like I read that poem and I was like, yes, yes. It's it's all in there somehow. All my fucked up notions of like trying to tell the truth in poems and like really caring about the truth, even when some people are like, yeah, but poetry, you can do anything. You can play. You can be anyone. You can. And my feeling of like, don't tell stories, but also, yeah, do tell stories. You know, poetry as this place of freedom, but also of like responsibility. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. You know, I think, how can I say? I love, I'm like fascinated by the word lie and also by the way that like people, and particularly, I guess, black folks like use the word lie. So like that, like that shit is real in the poem where I'm like, yeah, we weren't allowed to say lie in the house. Cause like my, like that shit was a curse word. It was like shit or fuck. Like you couldn't, you had to be like, yo, like Natasha's telling stories on me. You couldn't say like, she's lying on me. Um, or if you did, like you'd be sort of corrected in this way. But also like, you know, when I was outside of the house um, or when you wanted to like really say like, oh, someone was sort of uh, was taking liberties with what was fact or what was true, 
you you would say you a lie, right? Which is how that poem, the, the Ode to Vacation poem ends. It's like, vacation, you a lie. And I don't lie down for much of anything these days. Um, so to say like, not just like you're a liar or you're lying about this specific thing, but that you are like in the embodiment of a kind of constitutional dishonesty, right? That is, you know, that bears like a deeper a larger sort of reckoning, right? So like, if I say like, yo, look, Donald Trump is a lie. That's different than just saying like, oh, he's a liar, right? That's saying like, that his his constitution on a fundamental level is like dishonest. Like it's a, you know, it's a disorientation towards the world as it is or as it should be or as it could be. And so I'm like fascinated by that, but I'm also, you know, I think all all the time about um the, the Zornil Hurston like collection of folk tales, Mules of Mules and Men. Um, and in that book, the kind of like unnamed teller of the tales refers to all the stories as lies. So they'll be like, now I have to tell you the lie about, you know, how the rabbit got his ears or whatever the fuck, right? And I remember reading that in like high school, maybe like senior year of high school or something, senior junior year, and being like so enthralled by it, being like, damn, like that's kind of ill that like lie then becomes just this like fly story tell you um you know because i think in some ways like that also tracks to me right like i think about the stories that my grandmother told me as a kid about and the other people told you know told us about the, our families about sort of the past whatever and you know some of those things might have been like fact-based and some of them maybe not i have actually some of them I have very little way of knowing that, right? So like, for example, there's a story that like my great grandfather um, owned a bunch of land in Alabama, which is true, which I like know, know to be fact. And that he, um, in like the 1920s or 30s, Walt Disney wanted to buy that land and make it uh, like a theme park, right? So like there's a, I guess a, a alternate universe where Disneyland is not in Florida, it's in Alabama, you know, and it's wow. on like our family land. And like, do I know if that's true? No, and I don't really know that there's a way to like, to verify that, but there is a sort of constitutional truth, regardless that like he was a black man who had a lot of land and by way of that access potentially to like capital and power that was uncommon for black folks in in that region and and really in the country in many ways and that there were like white powers that be who had a deep who didn't want that to be the case right like that that's absolutely true right whether or not like that particular story is right or just or you know and so i think about like well, what are the th what is that story trying to like tell me right it's trying to tell me like you know, it's trying to tell me a number of themes and those themes hold true regardless of like if that specific anecdote is, is, not, is not factual, right? Or maybe it is factual, I don't actually know, right? But so, I don't know, I, I guess like, I say all that to say that like, I have become, I think in some ways less, I, I don't know, I think maybe I've become more speculative in my work than I would have thought myself comfortable with, like, you know, in, in past versions of myself, just because, 
Yeah, because sometimes like some of that shit is true. Like there's one of the other Nate Marshall poems in the book speculates like uh, alternative where that Nate Marshall becomes Nate Marshall because my like great grandfather who I don't, who I like didn't know and who, you know, his, my grandfather on that Marshall side didn't know very well or have a good relationship with that he like, you know, splits from Mississippi, moves to Colorado is super light skinned enough to pass and effectively like lives as a white man in Colorado and has kids. And part of, and part of how he like protects that identity is he creates this sort of hostility towards black folks in the house so that, um, so that the, that family will always keep their distance from those folks so that they're not like unwittingly exposed, which like, mm-hmm. is that factual in all likelihood? No, in all likelihood, like, I'm not like the secret, you know, distant cousin of the the sort of white nationalist Nate Marshall, but like, you know, but that story of like of passing is is like absolutely a true one, right? Like, there's there's a number of like documented things, and there and and even not even if it's not like a literal passing thing where someone changes their kind of racial categorization and identification, certainly there are ways that I think black people and other minoritized folks, other kind of dispossessed folks step towards or step into step towards a power structure in hopes of like, you know, gaining some personhood or gaining some ability to like make a life. And that, you know, part of that stepping towards often necessitates a kind of rejection of like who you had been in your past. So like, you know, that, like that, that is absolutely a true experience of, of assimilation or a sort of assimilative practice, regardless of like, if that specific incident is fact or not. Yeah, I want to just super quickly explain for folks who haven't read Nate's incredible book yet, because of course, you will, um, as soon as you can, that there, there are poems throughout the book that are about or addressed to or not the other Nate Marshall who shares your name um, and is a white nationalist, um, white supremacist. And uh, so in one of these, um, you are speculating about like how he, you know, maybe being actually related to him and where he comes from. But I, I wanted to ask you, is it important to you that because you're sort of describing speculating, and I, I love that you brought up the word speculative because maybe that's more helpful than lying. Like you're speculating um, about something that you have no evidence to have happened um, specifically to you, but that there is a larger truth that it reveals or that there is a truth um, in it, even if it is not autobiographically accurate. And I guess I'm wondering about whether that's important to you or whether you feel that you, you need to be able to articulate the larger truth or the truth in the lie in order to lie or speculate in a poem. So I'm sort of asking, like, what is the poem's level of allegiance or responsibility to the truth like would you would you 
tell stories in a poem or lie in a poem if it didn't feel like it ha it revealed was in the service of of truth yeah i don't have a lot of allegiance to like the facts mm -hmm. um just because you know i think facts are like i mean facts are helpful i don't want to like you know add to our sort of general suspicion of facts in the culture but i do think that like facts certainly like i mean facts are always being manipulated or being weaponized or being deployed towards like certain kinds of narratives and so you know i think we just like should understand that that is a kind of that that's a limitation of fact right and so you know i do think of like my kind of practice in poetry as a part of a kind of search for a truth. And sometimes that truth is like, often that truth is like strengthened and helped by facts, but not necessarily, right? Or not entirely, right? Like it, there are other things that I think can also be useful in that search for, you know, for some, for certain kinds of truth about how, you know, we exist in the world and how we relate to each other or might be able to relate to each other. Yeah. Let me ask you, um about your practice in poetry and I'll start like kind of with this question as like a, a genre question I guess because I'm curious to know about you know you do your you've written plays you're a hip-hop artist you've um you know you 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 use language in a lot of different ways not just as a poet and I loved I can't remember where I heard you say it I I should I should remember um, to give credit, but you you talked about like experimenting with or um, turning up or like turning the EQ dial, and you know maybe when you're writing a rap, the sonic kind of quality of the language is turned up, or maybe when you're writing a play, the narrative uh, level is 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 turned up, or maybe if you're writing a, a poem the lyric or the word, you know, the, the sort of the materiality of the language in a, in a certain kind of different way than sonic is turned up, but that, that the language is, is coming through and you're just turning the dial. Um, it's not mm -hmm. like it's a whole different mindset. It's not like it has a totally different purpose or comes from a totally different part of your brain or your body. And so I'd love to hear you speak generally about like being someone who has these different practices, but also I'm curious about like, do, do you think that poetry has a different relationship to the truth or like, you know, is, is, there, is there something other than the EQ dial that sort of shifts whether you're going to put that language into a different kind of container or or imagine that language spoken to a different kind of audience mm. or feel like that language needs a live audience or needs the um the page and the privacy of reading or the i, I don't know i'm sorry to be obsessed with this question of truth and I'm going to let it go in a yeah. second, but I'm just, I just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess like I think about things having like different levels of meaning or like layers of meaning or kinds of meaning. Mm 
right? And so, you know, so like a word, right? Like, let's take the word pleasure, right? Pleasure has a specific sound, right? And I would, I would articulate that as like, as a sonic meaning, right? Or a sonic kind of quality, right? Then there's also like the connotative meaning or quality, right? Which is like literally what it means. Like what, when you look it up in the dictionary, like what are the things listed out, right? What part of speech is it all that kind of stuff. But then there's also a sort of like, um, or sorry, that's like a denotative meaning. That's like the denotative mm. meaning. Then right. the connotative meaning is like, well, how do you, we feel about that, right? Because there are different ways to like articulate the idea of pleasure, some of which are more positive, some of which are more negative, some of which are more neutral, right? And so, you know, there's, there's like the sonic thing, there's the denotative thing, there's the connotative thing, you know, and then I guess there's also like the narrative kind of meaning, right? Which, you know, which is like words carry stories, right? Whether that's like the OED, like, well, it developed from this language, went to here, went to here, it was used in this way. Or, you know, or whatever, right? Like if it, if it jogs something for us. So like, you know, native is a word that has a whole bunch of like story attached to it, particularly in the sort of American imagination, right? Whether you're thinking of it in the context of like, a story of like gentrification and what it means to be native to a place versus to be like a transplant, or you're thinking of indigeneity, obviously, or you're thinking of, you know, something like, like a native son, right? Which is, you know, this, this book that has become a kind of canonical thing in the American context, particularly amongst like how we think about like black people in the kind of literary imagination, right? Like all that is like, held in in the word or in the phrase or in the sentence or in the thing and so for me I think often like in different like different genres all those things are still in the car but who's driving is mm -hmm. maybe like part of how I see the the genre difference right so um you know so like if I'm writing drama or fiction then the narrative is a little more driving the thing right but the sound is still there, right? Like if you listen to like the audio dramas or the plays that I've done, like there's still a ton of language play, like the flipping of these phrases, rhyme, and after, like all that stuff is still present and accounted for, but it, it just might not be like the, the, the thing that is, that is kind of the instigating factor, right? Yeah, but then like, if I'm writing a song, yeah, I still wanna like tell a story or have meaning or have, you know, like speak to these sort of issues, but like, I want the shit to sound funky. I want it to sound good. I want it to sound interesting. I want it to like do some things at the level of, at the quality of sound, right? Um, and so that become that is maybe driving the car a little more. And so that that's like part of how I, I guess I like do some differentiation, but not, but not always. And like, you know, and sometimes like when you're approaching a page to write, say like to work on a novel or to work on, uh, whatever, like there might be other things that like spark something for you and mm -hmm. you, you know, you run with that a little bit. So like, you know, yeah, like I started working on what maybe will become a short story and it came out of like this, uh, what was it? It was like this stupid little story I told on Twitter about like, um, about like a time that happened to me in undergrad and in it, I said the line, like, 
it was like, look, this was the age of Mrs. Officer by Lil Wayne, right? And so for anyone who like knows anything about hip hop and particularly who was like sort of around and just paying attention to like popular music in like the late 2000s, that gives you like a really specific setting. You're like, oh mm -hmm. shit, okay, I know so much about this now. And I'm like, okay, cool, word. You know, so sometimes like things will surprise you and things will like pop out and you follow that and like see where it goes. Cause you know, like I still, I don't really know what that short story is about. I just like recognized when I, when I wrote that tweet or whatever, I was like getting tweets. Off. I was like, oh, but that, that piece of language, like there's something there. Like, let me like pull that mm. and like set it to the side and maybe it can become something, something more later. Do you feel like you're being drawn more towards one particular medium or another or genre or another right now yeah. during this time of physical distancing? Mm. That's a good question. Um, not really. I mean, I think I have like a sort of weird relationship in that. I think I'll say this. I, I have no idea what my next book of poems, presuming that there is a next book of poems, I have no idea what that shit is about. Mm. I, I don't know like what it's gonna look like, be like, think about like none of none of it. And in some ways that's scary, but in some ways I'm like cool with that. I'm like kind of at peace with that. Um, but I do have a sense of like, I think I have a stronger sense of like, stories that I want to tell or questions that I want to ask in some other genres. Mm. Um, so like I've been kind of toying with fiction more in the last few months, um, which is like not a genre I've like published a ton in. Yeah, but because I have like a stronger sense of like, okay, here's some stories that, here's some things I want to explore that I think are like maybe better explored in that context than in a poem or in a series of poems or whatever. Yeah, so I've been like thinking about that. I've also just been thinking about nonfiction too, in the sense of like, that there are some like historical figures or moments or phenomena that I'm like interested in thinking through and kind of documenting. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I guess I'm also thinking about nonfiction from like a craft perspective in that I do think that there are some, some thoughts that I've been like turning over in my head over the last bunch of years as like a teacher and as a poet and as a kind of thinker that maybe would be, that like, you know, maybe I, I can like document in some deeper ways that could be helpful to, to other folks in the field, if that makes sense, right? So like the thing I said to your class earlier about like, thinking about poems and approaching poems, not, not as the thing on the page being the poem, but as like that being a sort of sheet music that helps you approach the poem. Like that's an idea that I've been like turning over my head for the last bunch of years that I think like at some point I want to like explore more in some kind of like kind of craft based meditation. Awesome. I, my students were like so excited about that idea and definitely <laughs> wanted to hear more. I mean, I think I'm asking you for a bunch of different reasons and, and mm -hmm. I'll be more explicit about one of them, which is just like, you've done so much work that's 
collaborative, right? So, I mean, I'm thinking about um, your collaborations with Eve Ewing, um, about Crescendo Literary, Dark Noise Collective, also like the anthology making, um, the Breakbeat Poets, or um, the Daily Lyrical Project, like all of these, you know, Mm. I mean, music and, and, and um, producing a play, producing an audio drama, and organizing, you know, like, you know, lest I forget the way in which organizing is, uh, seems really inextricable from your teaching and your performing. So all of those require other people. And Mm -hmm. um, I'm curious about whether you feel like at this moment in your life, both personally, politically, and in terms of like, COVID-19, whether it's more important than ever to have those collaborative projects, even if they're changed, even if the logistics of them have changed, or if this is a time to like give space to some less collaborative projects like fiction writing or nonfiction, which, you know, I've heard from, I've experienced myself, but also heard from fiction writers that it like just takes a lot of time and like a lot of solitude and so I I guess I'm just thinking about that like how is the collaborative part of your process going yeah that's such a good question I think hmm that's really true about collaboration and I think much of my whole orientation towards art has been one of like collaboration and one that I feel yeah that I feel is about like how I relate to other people and how we like work together to make things and make things possible. And so that hasn't changed, but I guess like a a shift that has sort of happened in some ways is I think in the past, I often thought that the sort of highest form of relationship was sort of like project based, Mm. (laughs) if that makes sense. Like in many ways, like me and Eve kind of, birthed the the idea of crescendo literary because because we were like good friends and we had this sort of like evolving friendship that was happening and we began to think about okay well what can this friendship like do that is beyond us that sort of produces something useful for the world and like that's cool i think that's like a cool way to sort of to think about one's relationships because it's not you know, entirely sort of self-serving, but it's also thinking about how can I use this connection to like serve, you know, serve the larger uh, body. But a, a thing that I think I've noticed recently is like, okay, so like if I can give the example of like my, my rap group, right? Which we started in high school, like Daily Lyrical Product, like DLP, we, we started doing it when we were like 15, 16. Mm-hmm. Um, we kind of met because my homie Lamar was like, I didn't know him. He like walked up to me after school and was like trying to sell me his mixtape. And I was like, cool. And I liked it. And so I hit him up. He had like his email on the thing. And he was like, look, if it's whack, email me. I'll give you your money back. You just hand it back to me. <laughs> and, you know, part really like how we became friends in a real way was through working together was like, you know, we went to, we like went on a double date to an open mic spot by his house and the end of the night, we like performed together with the band and then got offered a job. And so then we literally started working together at this like this after school matters, this sort of like teen 
like jobs program that exists in, exists in Chicago. And then we were like making records together and making an album together. And like, that was a big part of our friendship. And I think it wasn't really until the last two years where I realized, you know what, I can still be like really close to Lamar and not like have to like, not need like a mixtape to come out of it to sort of uh, validate that closeness or like prove that closeness um, that we have enough connective tissue and enough care for each other that we can like talk and be connected beyond beyond this sort of like the production of a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I don't know. I, I guess like <laughs> I say all the, that's like a very long way of saying that. I think part of the the space I'm in now is like. I'm less concerned with like what I can make with the people who I love and the people who I'm in community with. And I'm more concerned with like those relationships being strong and how do we like, how am I like a good and accountable community member to them, right? Mm -hmm. To, to my partner or to my, you know, elementary school homies or to the dark, like, I mean, it's a thing I, I think about a lot with dark noise because often like people, people will talk about dark noise in a kind of past tense way. Mm. Like people outside of us, but we never, we never speak about it that way. Um, and so it's always interesting to me. Yeah. When other, fo- cause other folks would be like, yeah, we all just sort of dormant now. And I'm like, no, we're not. We like are more, I talk to the motherfuckers all the time. Like, yeah. So say what dark just, noise collective is. Yes. For, for so dark. So yeah. So the dark noise collective is, uh, is like a sort of crew of, of poets, you know, uh, poets, but also folks who work across many, many genres, many mediums. Yeah, and we all got together. We're all like right around the same age. So we're all literally born in the year 1989. We all got together when we were like in our early 20s, just thinking like, how do we ally with each other? How do we sort of create a kind of radical uh, sort of family making or community making thing? Um, around poetry and around art and so it's my it's there's six of us uh the sort of I guess like mother father figures of the idea of dark noise would be like Aaron Samuels poet from Rhode Island and uh and Fatima Fatima Oscar right and then the other the rest of us are myself Danette Smith Jamila Woods Franny Choi and so yeah so like you know, when we were younger, when we sort of first started in the first, I would say five years or so of the collective, we were we were producing a lot of stuff for the world. You know, like we made curricular tools and we did a little bit of touring together and would do shows together. And we had like a fish fry that we did a couple of years, um, you know, at AWP as a kind of thing. And um, it, we like published a, a sort of suite of poems together in a journal. Um, we actually we actually worked on like a chat book, like a joint chat book that I think we did like two different versions of, but they never came out. So I don't know, maybe the archive will get them, who knows? But like, you know, but it was really kind of product and project based in some ways. Um, it wasn't the only thing, but I think like that felt important to us as a way of almost like proving to 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 the world that this was a real thing that we had made. And I think now we just feel less of that pressure and it's more like, yo, like it's it's this motherfucker's birthday. Like how do we celebrate them? Or like mm. they just lost someone who they care about. How do we like make sure they feel cared for and held? Or 
um, you know, this important thing is happening in this person's life. How do we mark that occasion like that? And, and, and like, I think that for the last sort of half, the last half decade of the kind of project that is dark noise has been more of the focus and, but it's interesting the way that like, you know, focusing on making sure we're real good with each other makes people think that we don't exist anymore, <laughs> which, you know, which I guess proves the kind of point of the earlier, the earlier work. Yeah. But like, these are the projects that we're doing now, but they're not legible to, to mm. people outside of that space. And that's okay. I think that there's like something really, you know, really important about the, the kind of intimate project of like building relationships. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's such a, it's such a fine line. I feel like, I mean, commonplace for me is a way of making friends and building community, but also I know full well that like, okay, as much as I love your book, if I had direct message you on Twitter or like reached out to you and been like, Hey, do you want to just like talk on zoom for two hours you'd be like I hope you would have said to me I don't really have time for that I've got a lot of other shit to do and so there's also something interesting like there's a part of me that really um, wants to move away from these products these like consumable kind of even even thinking of my poems as products for an audience or you know just really go back to process to relationships but then you know one of the shortcomings of that not with my closest friends but yes with kind of people I don't already know um, or people I'm less close to is that it's unless there's kind of like a joint investment you mean even the language gets so capitalist right a feeling of like what's in it for you what's in it for me that there's something external it's hard sometimes to get close to somebody i mean i wonder how much of this care and connection in part was built on having made these like external things for others together and now you don't need that to the same extent yeah, um, yeah it's really interesting yeah. And I think that that's, yeah, I think that that's true. Like that they, those things can be kind of like training wheels. Right. So like, mm-hmm. yeah, like we probably wouldn't have like a two hour conversation just to kick it and talk craft or whatever, if there wasn't the product of the, you know, the podcast that was produced out of that, out of which like, you know, you can sort of get credit as like a curator and maker of culture and, you know, I presumably like get, you know, get a kind of PR lift for the book and for yep. whatever else I'm up to. And yeah, and so there's like something mutually beneficial about that. I don't think that's like a bad thing. And I also, I also want to name that like, I don't think, I think sometimes we do too much seeding of the language of economies to capitalism. Like we conflate mm. those things. Mm. So like, you know, the idea of the marketplace is not a capitalist idea. Marketplaces existed far before like capitalism ever existed. The idea of like the marketplace as, you know, the supreme mover and as like the, you know, the only thing that people need to pay attention to. Now that is maybe capitalist, right? Mm. But like the, the idea of like making making something for a public or for people is like, 
is like really deeply human. It's, you know, it's not, it's not, you know, it doesn't have a kind of ideology. Now how we approach it might have an ideology or like the, you know, what happens out of it might, might take on the facets of that. But just the idea of saying like, I want to make a thing for people to like engage with isn't, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think has like, yeah, or for people to value, or for people yeah. to, yeah. Oh, I, I, Nate, that that's got to go in your new nonfiction book. <laughs> you you got you got to write about that. You got to write about the marketplace oh, outside of you know it's not not defined by or limited to capitalism. Oh man, you got to yeah. do it. Yeah, I think yeah. I guess that, like that's an idea worth exploring. I got to figure out a way to do it that like <laughs> keeps the econ people out of my mentions. <laughs> well, they, you know, just just slap, you know, the word poetry on the cover and then they won't read it. There you go. You're safe. Mm -hmm. You're safe with the poets. Um, I want to see if you have any questions for me or anything that's important to you that we didn't get to. I just want to ask one other question, which is like a weird, maybe awkward, but I don't think so, uh, question, yeah. which is, I heard you say that part of part of of Finna and and please correct me if I'm wrong, but like part of the process of writing the book or thinking about the book or thinking about um, the use of Finna as a title and the way language sort of the way slang and vernacular, even those words are, are sort of problematic or limited um, function in the book, um, came out of your experience of speaking to audiences and particularly white people in audiences who were listening to you read from your first book, Wild Hundreds, um, and their sort of comment that, oh, we really like this book, but it's so sad. And I, I'm wondering, both I'm sort of asking for myself as a white podcast host, but also what kinds of responses are you getting to Finna that may be welcome, that may be sort of unwelcome, maybe in a productive way, maybe in an unproductive, just super frustrating way. And mm. and what kinds of responses are you wanting, if if at all, particularly from white people? Or if you're just like, I don't really care. The book's not for you. I'm not, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess like, you know, the reality is like, I think that we're in a really hard time right now. I have like read very little in the last few months. Um and like, even when I sort of try to read or try to like invest intellectually in a book, I just haven't had the bandwidth kind of emotionally or intellectually. I just, I think I'm just exhausted in a kind of way. Mm -hmm. And so for me, like the fact that anyone is like picking up a book and reading anything in it at all and having any kind of response to me feels like a, like a large miracle. And so I'm mostly just like grateful to anyone that is like, fucking with the book in any way and I also will say that I think you know part of like that you know I, I've like talked in other interviews about yeah about the book being a kind of response not like a talking back to but a sort of response to a feeling misread with the first book and so being like okay well how do I like 
not not talk back to that, but just have a different conversation that doesn't include those actors. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of that maybe comes from, I think most people are bad at small talk. And to go back to like a much earlier part of our conversation, I think part of the reason why a lot of people find a sort of kind of unexpected comfort with me is that I'm, I think I'm pretty good at small talk and I'm good at a lot of different kinds of it, hmm. which is maybe just like being Midwestern and being a, like being someone who has spent a lot of time in many different kinds of spaces in a way that's perhaps uncommon culturally. And so I have like a fairly wide range of shit I can talk about. And so because of that, like, yeah, I don't know. I just, I think I'm like probably better than maybe the average person at like small talk. And I think most people are pretty bad at it. And I think particularly like probably for many white people who like live their lives largely not thinking very much about people who are not white, the experience of like seeing me read poems that center people who are not white and hear those like they don't really know how to respond to it. They understand themselves being moved by it and having a reaction to it, but they don't really know what to say. And so I think mm. a lot of those like kind of most like cringeworthy moments of response happen because people just didn't know what to say and they and they didn't feel like they could just say, I really appreciate the work you did. Can you sign my book? Thank you so much. They felt like they had to sort of offer more in some way. And so they like offered things I'd like didn't need or care to hear. And so in some ways, like it's been, I guess I've like the response to the book has been much better in certain ways, but it, but that's maybe just because since everything's on zoom, there's no small talk in or out of events. And I think part of it was part of what was great was that I didn't have to like spend 45 minutes to drive out to this place where nobody looks like me sit there awkwardly drinking a glass of wine and folks feel like they have to come up to me and say something to express like I'm not hostile to you <laughs> and then they end up like saying a bunch of shit that's goofy or that like isn't helpful to me or that is even like harmful to me or whatever and then at the end of the event you know I have to like hang out for a little bit so as to kind of express I have not been offended mortally by any of you people and we're good basically mm-hmm. And then that just gives more opportunity for us to say like stupid things that maybe harm each other or that just fuck with each other, you know, fuck with each other's headspace. I don't have to do that. I can just like pop in, like Mm -hmm. turn on the camera, be like, these are the things about my book. They can ask the questions they have about the book, get what they can get from that, vice versa. And then we're like out and I turn it off and then I go watch Scandal like by myself (laughs) and like eat ice cream or whatever. Like, Mm -hmm. so like, that's just like a much, I'm not saying like, I like, I don't like Zoom events more than I like being able to like be in person and feel the energy of people and connect with people in that way. But there are some benefits to it. And I think that is like a real, a real one. And in some ways, one that I'm grateful for about this book specifically, because I feel like a lot of the sort of like weird side conversations or side comments that I would get from like non-black people just don't have much uh, as nearly as much space to happen now. That's fascinating. I, I had not thought about that, but it seems so, 
it's so awful to be in the dead space of Zoom and, you know, read and you can't, you can't see people's facial expressions. You can't hear them breathing. You can't watch them smile or cry or, you know, nod their heads. And, you know, you can't hear if they're saying, "Uh uh-huh, you know, but on the other hand, all that shit just like comes at you and, and you absorb it if your body's there. And that's so interesting. I've done a few Zoom readings um, since the pandemic. They do have this weird, like dead quality. But then I also, when it's over, I feel okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's just like a, I think a thing I've been trying to, to think about maybe for my own care and sanity is like well what are the what are the things that have been like what are the things that this that this is opening up as a possibility right Mm -hmm. because so much of of the i think the experience of COVID 19 has been a closing of possibility and so it's helpful for me to think about like what and i'm like well you know earlier in this thing i did an event in montana and miami in the same day and like sure couldn't have done that in the past right yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I think the thing about being able to protect yourself or insulate yourself from like catching, you know, catching those kind of, you know, energy strays is, is, you know, is a real benefit to this, uh, to this form. Well, getting hmm. to talk to you is a real benefit. I wish we were in person. Um, Absolutely. Nate, you want to, anything I forgot to say that's really important to you, or should we end with one more poem from the book? Well, I'm curious, what is like your relationship to New York? Yeah. And, and thinking about leave, how are, how are you feeling in relationship to, to that place? And even to like the place you find yourself now in Maine, like, has it been kind of odd? Because like one thing I felt, I think being here now is like, especially this summer, like, I felt kind of relieved to not be in Chicago because I recognize, like, with the, with the, that distance, a little bit of, like, how much certain kinds of urbanity, like, creates anxiety for me, Mm -hmm. is, like, anxiety-inducing, and also just how, like, there are some things about my life that would be, like, in, for example, in the uprising, you know, there was a lot of, like, looting or whatever that like closed down or like vandalism that closed down stores across the city and like I know that if I had been in Chicago in June I would have had to like drive much further or go to a different part of the city or the region to like go to the grocery store and I'm like glad that I that that was like not a thing I had to like do Mm -hmm. you know which I don't that isn't like you know change my kind of political orientation towards the the usefulness of a certain kind of uprise, but it does like, but yeah, I just like felt thankful for that. Or I felt thankful that like my nephew spent his, a lot of the summer out, he spent like two months of the summer out here with us. And like, I was cool. It was cool to me that like, you know, after a kind of spring of like upheaval of like transitioning online and having this really scary health thing or whatever, that he could go to a place that was like kind of boring and kind of slow. Mm-hmm. And like, just be able to kick it here with his uncle. Yeah, you know, like that was, that was, and I kind of feel bad about feeling some of those things, but like I just, but they are, they feel, they still feel true to me. 
So uh, yeah, I don't know if you wanted to like say more about like yeah. I mean, so many of the things that you're saying are are you know uh, I recognize in in my own experience. Like, I feel really um, guilty for leaving New York, for being able to leave New York, um, for yeah. you know for mm-hmm. having my city go through this enormous trauma you know, the whole country is going through this trauma, several overlapping traumas, but the, the trauma of COVID and the way that it hit New York in particular, you know, I was there on 9-11. I was there, you know, all the other sort of big moments, um, New York moments that I've been um, alive for, I've been in New York. And, and so I felt extremely guilty about being able to leave, about not being there. I feel like the the two weeks that I was back, my sense, and again, like, is this the sense of someone who's a lifelong New Yorker, or is this the sense of someone who has been away for six months, that, that the trauma of COVID has not, is not being processed because it's not over. So that's a very strange thing Mm -hmm. to kind of like enter into a story in media res and like see people, you know, and and I, I know that this is very complicated and I'm speaking as a white person, um, who's grown up in Manhattan and in a relatively, affluent neighborhood on the Upper West Side. I'm, I'm appalled at the way the Upper West Side has been in the news in terms of like really wanting these hotels that have been housing homeless people to throw the homeless people out, you know, of the Upper West Side. You know, that's in, that's not the Upper West Side that I feel connected to, but in any case, I'm speaking sort of like all over the place. I think that also the hardest moments for me being here emotionally were when there were massive protests um, in New York and not being there, knowing that were I in the city that I would um, certainly feel compelled to show up to those protests. I feel healthy here. I feel healthier here than I have for a really long time. I was having a lot of pretty serious panic attacks when I was in New York, but this was before COVID. Um, Mm. I'd been sort of wanting to leave New York. And I thought, well, if I ever get a job that, you know, I was applying for jobs all around the country. I was like, if I get a job, then I'll leave New York. Or if this happens, but I, I couldn't find a reason to kind of have to leave New York. And I felt that I would never willingly mm. choose to leave New York. Like almost it's, it would like, who would I be if I just willingly chose to leave New York? I mean, I think it's very deeply ingrained in my identity mm-hmm. that I feel much more like a New Yorker than an American. And I know that that's, yeah. that's not true. I pay federal taxes. I am responsible for the crimes of the United States government. And yet, I don't think that my family, I, I don't think my family thinks of New York as part of the United States. And like, I, I, so there, I'm saying a lot of different things, but I think that I'm, that, that the thing that you, that you said that really sticks with me is like, it got to the point for me where stepping 
around someone who was sleeping on the street, I started to feel like that act of, that required a certain level of dehumanization Mm. that being there, I wasn't helping. I wasn't doing something. And I didn't want to be one of these people who like, you know, runs away from the city and like raises my kids in the suburbs or goes to a place like Maine, which is like 98% white. Even the American flag here feels like an act of hostility and an act of racism. I think this is something that many people I know are struggling with, which is how do you take care of yourself? How do you take care of your family, your loved ones, your neighbors, without turning away from the world, you know, without abdicating your responsibilities and your connections to strangers, to, you know, to, it's not okay that I, on some level, it's not okay that I am really enjoying being so far away from other people and having trees and a, and being able to go outside. Um, uh, and on another level, I don't know who benefits from my living through my whole life in a state of panic and unhealthiness. I don't know ultimately if that helps me help the, the world. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I feel, yeah, no, I mean, yeah, this is, these are like a lot of the things I've been thinking about. And it's not like I have like some great love for like Colorado or Colorado Springs, but again, like, you know, part of the practice has been, for me over the last bunch of months has been thinking about, well, what are the things that have been productive in this moment? And given that, like, yeah, but, but, you know, but that does then beg the question of like, yeah, like what are the problematics of that, right? Yeah, and there 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 aren't easy answers, right? There aren't like there aren't good, easy, simple kind of answers in you know, in ways that we sort of want. You know? Yeah. I I think I'm also like I have to remember that like New York is not the only real place in the world and I'm learning a lot of important lessons or having important experiences. It's not just like okay, when I'm not in New York, my life is on pause. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, it's such an elitist view of the world to think that like, whether it's New York or Chicago, like that's real and other places aren't real. Of course they're real. So I've been thinking about that too, trying to, trying to think about what I, what, not that my life here is the absence of life. It's just a different life. Yeah, that's real. Yeah. All right, Nate, I got to let you go. Otherwise, because okay. otherwise I'll talk to you forever, which I really would love to do. Nah, it's okay. Um, it's cool. This has been amazing. I really, yeah, really you. appreciate it. And I'm so excited for people to read your book, to hear your book, and to, and to if they don't already know you, get turned on to all of your many, many projects and amazing things.
It's Monday on the Kennedy. This has been episode 91 of Commonplace with poet Nate Marshall. This episode was produced by me, Valentine Connedy, and Christine LaRusso. Nathaniel Wokstein pitched in to smooth out our sound editing. At the top of the episode, and now during this outro, you're listening to the title track of the album Grown by Daily Lyrical Product. Daily Lyrical Product is a Chicago-based hip-hop group featuring MC and producer Lamar Just Love Smith and MC and poet Nate Illuminate Mikes Marshall. Follow Nate Marshall, a.k.a. Illuminate Mikes, on Twitter and Instagram, or subscribe to his Substack to know more about his upcoming books, readings, and events. Many thanks to University of Pittsburgh Press, One World, and Harper Perennial for sharing books with us for the Commonplace Book Club. Many thanks to all Commonplace patrons. You make Commonplace possible. Thank you also to everyone who has sent me words of encouragement and support. I'm sending love and good, healthy, transformational, protective wishes right back at you. Be well, and thank you for listening.